Good morning. Good to see everyone. If you want to be working in your scriptures, finding Luke 14, and uh, if you forgot your Bible or whatever, there's some in the window sills. We've been going through a chronological look at uh, kind of this last journey of Jesus's from uh, his home area in Galilee down to Jerusalem for that hour that has been appointed for him. Hasn't come yet. We're not going to be reading that today, but that's the direction he's heading. He's set his face towards that. It's a plan that was hatched from eternity, and Jesus is coming to flesh to fulfill it for us. This is uh, this story today. The scriptures take place in an area called Perea, and the timing is appears to be late December, early January. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time there, um, near as I can tell, a couple weeks to a month maybe, but. Um, he taught in his teaching a lot of parables and, and lessons in the villages and towns in, the, in that area of Perea, which is on the right-hand side, of the eastern side of the Jordan River. And the scriptures that we're going to be bouncing through today are Luke 14 through 18, the chapters. We won't do every single one of those, but uh, we're going to do some of them today. And there's, there's a list of parables that we're all familiar with, but maybe we didn't connect the location where Jesus was teaching them and the timing was relative to his period of time here on earth, nor the timing as it relates to um, his journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. So I think when we start to add those things in, it just kind of opens up the scriptures to us. So there, this is a whole list of all of the parables that he was teaching in this area. We're not going to go through them all today, panic, but you'll recognize those. Um, those are near and dear to our hearts and our understanding of Scripture and Jesus. Um, next slide. We'll be uh, starting out in Luke 13. I may have told you Luke 14, but we're going to start at 13. As we uh, set the stage here uh, for Jesus' teaching, all right, beginning with verse 22, chapter 13, verse 22. <clears throat> then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, well, wait a minute, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth 
when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places in the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. There's a lot of stuff said in, in these verses. Um, I think the ones that really hit me are, there's a deadline, there's an expiration date to when we can say yes to Jesus. Um, we go about our Christian lives sharing the gospel of Jesus, hoping that people will say yes to Jesus. But there's going to come a time in the future, maybe in the not-so-distant future, where that will no longer be an opportunity for them. Because when the door is shut, when the next stages start happening, it could be too late. It even applies to our lives here on earth. You know, there comes a day when our physical body expires. We die. We physically die. And after that, you know, your, your decision is made. You can no longer change your decision. And that really expresses a, the gravity of the decision in our life and what it means. And, and the, the way that we enter is through faith. It's through faith. It's not just deciding you're going to enter, but you have to believe on the Lord Jesus first. That's how you enter. And many people try to say that, hey, I was there when you were teaching. I was there when you were preaching. I was there when you were doing a miracle. I saw you do it. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Just showing up here at church week in and week out does not count in terms of receiving eternal life. You have to make a decision. You have to be born again. It's a spiritual event in your life, a spiritual transaction. So, uh, you know, the common saying is just by going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. <laughs> just coming to church doesn't make you a believer. It says in the last verse sentence there that those who are last will be first and first will be last. And boy, there's people that preach a whole sermon on this, but I think just for this morning's context, it's um, those who think that they're above everybody else, those who maybe have all the trappings and blessings of the world, and maybe they're extra intelligent and they know all things, they're going to be last. They're not going to be accepted in because they didn't have that faith transaction. They weren't born again. And those who maybe are poor and who have not received favor and um, blessings and things in life and they really struggle through life, but they had faith. They will be first. So we're going to see as we go through this, there's going to be some other parables that Jesus is teaching that builds on that foundation. All right, I'm in uh, 31 now. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. 
I want to pause just a moment here to help put this into context in both the timing and the land and the people. So up here on our map, we have um, you know Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Jericho, the Jordan River. He was coming down here and went up to uh, Mount of Olives and uh, Bethany last week, and now he, we finished up last week where we went back down into this area, Perea. But these numbers, <laughs> one, two, and three, are the regions or the areas where Herod's sons took over rule once Herod the Great died. And remember, um, in Matthew 2, when, when uh, Jesus was born, how Herod sent soldiers out to kill all the baby boys, thinking he could kill baby Jesus. And remember, Scripture says that they departed and went down to Egypt, right? And they stayed there until that Herod died. When he died, his sons took over different regions of his kingdom. Herod ruled over all of that originally, but the sons took over different regions. And Scripture says that when they came back from Egypt, they decided to bypass Jerusalem and Bethlehem and go back up to Galilee because they heard that Herod's son, Archelaus, was ruling. Remember that? I'm sure you did. We go through that all the time during the Christmas season. So back to uh, verse 31, 32. So Jesus replies, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and I will heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Now we all know what he's hinting at in this. On the third day that he will be raised again from the dead. But Jesus was trying to point out to him that I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep pressing in. I'm going to keep doing what I have to do. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus knew that he would be crucified in Jerusalem, and he's over here. So he knows that he's got to keep going and make his way up to Jerusalem for the events to play out that they have the Godhead had already planned. Uh, thir verses 34 and 35 of Luke 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know that that's what people were shouting when Jesus came riding the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But look at the imagery here. He's calling Herod, Antipas, a fox. And he's identifying himself as a hen, and he's identifying the people in Jerusalem as chicks. So a fox would come in and pursue the hen house, and the hen would gather all the chicks under 
their wings and protect her. But often the hen will get eaten by the fox, right? So look how he set up this imagery here. And we know that just a short time after this, Jesus does get crucified. But this is the way Jesus is thinking about the whole um, physical kingdom. It, the saints were thinking that Jesus would come down to Jerusalem and set up a physical rule and send the, their dirty roans out. But Jesus is showing us a way that we should be in our hearts. So, remember Herod Antipas, he's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. Remember that story? Oh, yeah. And why? Because John the Baptist had called him out on taking his brother Philip, Philip's wife, called him out on it, and was not happy. So that's, this is the environment and the, the geography that Jesus was born in, grew up in, and now he's preparing to go to the cross. All of that is taking place. And we, we're living in a, an age, a season where a lot of crazy stuff is going on in the world too. And, you know, we have to be wise and we have to be alert and we have to be walking in the spirit because it's not a question of if it's going to happen it's a question of when it's going to happen and we sure see a lot of signs that the end of the last days is rolling forward it's getting closer and closer all right continue on chapter 14 so Jesus goes through a number of parables, and the first one is, is less of a parable, but rather an action that he took on the Sabbath day because he was trying to teach the Pharisees the true heart of what the Sabbath day should be. One Sabbath, I'm in chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There was in front of him a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? <laughs> now this is you know, what we might call a trick question. They all know the law. They specialize in the law. They push the law on people. And the Sabbath, they, they elevated it so much, they distorted it out of what the true context was should have been the God's purpose for the Sabbath for man. So Jesus is just kind of, you can almost see him smirking when he's saying that because he knows what they're going to answer. But they remain silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed them, healed them and sent him away. And then he asked the Pharisees again, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Jesus was just calling out their hypocrisy and all they could do was keep quiet in the face of truth. Verse seven. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, 
he told them this parable. So um, what's that, what that's referring to is oftentimes you'll have a table, a banquet, there'll be a lot of places, and the guest of honor is always given a special seat, and it, you know the whole room is maybe focused towards that particular seat. Maybe they're given special place settings or food, so they're guests of honor. And then we have people that want to sit next to that main guest of honor. So they come up and they'll sit at the table next to that guest of honor. It's kind of what Jesus is referring to here. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you will then invite them. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, excuse me, sir, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, you who are believers, you who want to follow Jesus, you who want to have the type of heart that Jesus wants us to have, when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we clearly see here that pride is the enemy of humility. It's the enemy of grace. We, as Christians, often, we, I think, overdo our place in the kingdom with pride. We'll, we'll say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a son of God, and therefore I deserve the best, and I'm going to take the best seat. And yet, Jesus is saying, be humble. Be humble. Humility wins the day. And even tells us if we get a little too prideful, he has a way of humbling us. You know, he may tell us to take the lower seat. You know, you're in the wrong seat. You're in the wrong place. So I think we as Christians, we need to have a demeanor and a countenance and approach people with humility. Humility is attractive. Humility is powerful. Continue on, verse uh, 12. Then Jesus said to his host, boy, you start to wonder, should I invite Jesus over for lunch or not? <laughs> when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness. There's a huge lesson in this. But just to, for a few short comments are, there's a, uh, this, is, this is common demand throughout the world. You know, we like to have banquets or do things and invite the rich and powerful, the wealthy, the famous, whoever, you know, guests of honor. And we do it with hidden motives. We do it with wrong motives. We want to be seen with them. We want to be known as one who can gather those people up 
making us more important because we were able to convince them to come. And we know that the next time a banquet's thrown by them, they'll invite us and we'll be doing our best to make sure everybody knows that we were invited to this celebrity's place for lunch or dinner. So it's a, um, what they call hand washing a hand type of situation. So it's a, it's a system uh, of favor to, um, it's a system <coughs> where, you know, we know that if we do somebody a favor, they owe us one. And if we do a favor for somebody that's particularly wealthy or powerful or famous, they will owe us one. And we walk around with that innocent, oh, this is great. So-and-so owes me a favor. But Jesus wants us to do things not expecting anything in return. Now, that is where the rubber meets the road. When we do things for Jesus, when we do things for others, we need to do it without expecting anything in return. Continuing on in uh, verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So he's kind of changing the subject. He's kind of tossing out, you know, check it out. I got this figured out. I'm tossing out this great scripture. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So what that's referring to, um, people got the invitation a couple months early, you know, maybe in the mail or however they got it. You know, there's going to be a banquet on such, such date. And then on that day, he sent the servant out to tell him, okay, it's ready, be here at 2 o'clock. So they've been invited, and now they've been reminded and, and informed. Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on the way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I got married. I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you had ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Wow. This is like slapping the Pharisee in the face with a fish. It's uh, powerful. So that those who were on the A-list got invited, but they began to make excuses. And we all, everyone is invited to this banquet, to this wedding feast that's going to take place in heaven after the rapture. And we're invited. Are we going to make excuses? 
You know, we all can admit to some excuses that we've made for not receiving Jesus' invitation, not following him, not doing the things he said. But Jesus is saying none of those are important enough to have an excuse to stay away. And I think here we see that Jesus also values everyone, wants everyone in. He he is inviting the blind, the lame, the hungry, the poor, because they are welcome in this kingdom just as much as anybody else. And I think as humans, we tend to uh, grant favoritism to those who are maybe wealthy or powerful or famous. And of course, the Pharisees thought they were, right? They thought they were the, the rulers and they knew everything, that they should, they deserved the greater favor. The other thing that Jesus is saying to them that they understood that maybe we miss is that the Jews, those who do not receive Jesus as Messiah, the Jews, uh, will miss that banquet. He's pointing out to them right there, you're going to miss this banquet if you do not come to faith in me. Uh, Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Jesus just said a few things in here that we're scratching our heads about, you know. Uh, I thought I couldn't buy my way into the kingdom. I thought there was nothing I could do to work my way into the kingdom. What is Jesus saying here? It seems to be contradicting what he taught me before. Well, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying, go hate your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. He's saying, love them less than me. In other words, Jesus needs to be first in her life. Jesus needs to be first in her life even before my spouse or my children, my church friends, my job. Jesus needs to be first in our lives. And if we don't put him first, what does he say? 
We're not worthy of being his disciple. I think when we first say yes to Jesus and we become born again, we don't realize this. We don't understand this. Some of us. Some of us knew what we were doing. Um, they knew the cost of what we were doing. And if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, missionaries go and they preach the gospel in these lands. So let's say they preach them to Muslims and a Muslim becomes a believer. They could be killed on the spot by their family. And it would be justified according to Islam to kill that person. Those people know. They, they weigh the consequences of accepting. But we, here in America, we're, we kind of take it for granted. But maybe today you're hearing the message that, you know, I need to count the cost. Am I, am I willing to surrender everything? We know the scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, there's the days that have started now are going to keep getting worse and worse. And until such time is lawlessness is increased, until such time is the love of most grow cold, and until such time as the great apostasy happens, people leaving church, leaving the faith because they really weren't believers. They weren't ready and willing to give up everything they have. And the question for us here today, the challenge for us here today is, are you? Are you willing to give up everything you have if necessary? <coughs> if you're called in the future to express your faith and commitment to Jesus, we may lose our, our cars, our houses, our jobs. It's an everyday occurrence that people are losing their jobs for standing up for Jesus, for expressing their faith in the workplace. Same with schools and colleges. So, wrestle with that question. Am I, is my heart there? Am I ready? Am I ready to give up everything? Are you, are you ready to say to your unbelieving family members that, yes, I believe in Jesus and you need to as well? Or are we going to um, not say that? Are we not going to stand up for our faith and for Jesus because we don't want to offend our family member? We don't want to lose the relationship with our family member. And Jesus is saying here, you better love them less than me. And it's a real world challenge. Um, I guess the three principles we pick up out of these is, number one, we need to love our family less than Jesus. We need to lay aside all of our rights. As Americans, we're kind of full of what our rights are, although we do acknowledge where they come from, that they only come from God. But so often, we're, we're manufacturing rights and elevating them over others and, and over Jesus. So the question is, if it comes down to it, if the other party who maybe is attacking us wanting to take one of our rights, something that is rightfully ours, something that's even given 
by our Creator, are we willing to let that go, to be taken advantage of, to be wronged for the cause of Christ? I don't have any single answer for you, but that's the question, and we need to uh, put in perspective when, when we're forced to decide. Uh, verse 34. This is that parable of the salt. I'm almost done here, so hang in there. Salt is good. We all know that. Hey, salt. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus is saying to us, one of the things he's saying to us here is, don't lose your fervor or your passion for him in the midst of daily life, in the midst of the things that are going to come against us as we get closer and closer to the <coughs> times. Um, don't get burnt out. Don't grow weary in doing good. We all, after we're serving Jesus for a while, doing things, there's times we grow weary. Maybe we're continuing to serve someone and they don't appreciate it or they keep asking for more, Jesus said, don't grow weary. Don't go weary. And that is not easy to do. And it can only be done through Christ living his life in us. And then finally, uh, chapter 15, we'll do verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <laughs> How many of you have been accused of that? Hanging out with sinners and doing things with them, welcoming them, giving them. Just like Jesus. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people persons who do not need to repent. There's a lot of uh, context in this parable that we can get. The one I want to bring out today is that putting the, the lost sheep on his, on his shoulders, so he's putting that sheep, that, that lamb, and he's carrying it back to the fold. He's gone out. He's taken the initiative to go out and find that lost sheep, so much so that he's put the 99 at risk, but he went out for that one lost sheep because he loves that lost sheep. That that sheep um, got lost. He, you know, he's not uh, as confident or worthy as maybe as these other 99 sheep. He goes out, he pursues them, and he picks them up, says, you're mine, we're going home, and carries them home. What does he do with the sheep? He delivers them home and he makes them safe and he's back in the fold. And it, what occurred to me this week, it's just like this picture. 
We know that Jesus had to carry the cross piece out to the, the post where he was going to be crucified. And I think of it like that cross piece that he's carrying on his shoulders because he's carrying the weight of the world, the sins of the world on his shoulder to the cross to be crucified, to pay the, for the sins of the world. He is doing that. It's like carrying that little sheep back to the fold. And we, it's our sins that are represented by that cross that he's carrying. And that's how much he loves us. And that's what he's done for us. The last parable, um, parable of the lost coin, verses 8 through 10. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I think maybe in, in our day and age, it's kind of hard to understand losing a coin in your house on the floor. But in their, in their uh, time, they're living in a house and they didn't have electricity. They had candles and oil to see. So things were a little darker around the edges. And the other thing I think that is kind of hard for us to appreciate, oh, a coin, who cares? If it's not paper, I'm not going searching for it. But it was valuable to us. Maybe if you think about your possession, maybe you have a, a diamond necklace, a bracelet, or a ring, and a diamond falls out, and that's worth hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and it falls out, and you lose it. Now you can begin to understand losing one coin. If you lose that diamond, you will be searching all over. And when you find it, you're going to be posting on Facebook, rejoice with me, I found it. Let's have a party. So then when we see that excitement, we begin to understand the excitement that God has in heaven when even one sinner repents and receives Jesus. That shows that every one of us is valuable to him. He wants us all to come. But just as Jesus said in the beginning of our lesson today, not everyone will go through the door. The door won't be open. Because everyone that goes through that door has to receive Jesus as Savior or the door will be closed on them. And, and even those who pretend to receive Jesus, the door will be closed on them. Door, Jesus will be saying, I don't know who you are. You might have been out there in the crowd, but I sure didn't meet you. So this is a very personal teaching that Jesus gives us today. It's a personal transformation and crucifixion of the old man. Alrighty. Well, praise God. Uh, any uh, comments, additions before we close out? Alrighty. Let's gather around and pray for one another. <laughs>